Today's uh, scripture reading will be Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21. Um, I will be reading the New King James Version. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Despite what some people and what most of the media would have us to believe, many people in America continue to be religious and continue to have religious interests that they are willing to pursue. You know, it's a documented fact that there are more people that attend religious services on any given weekend than attend all sporting events all year long. And that's really saying something. But reality dictates that people are religious for a variety of reasons. There are still some communities where it's socially acceptable to go to church, and so people do that for social reasons. There are some people who actually believe that they can buy God's favor by making great donations of money to to the church, and so they do that for sometimes political reasons. And then there are some people who are members of the church because their parents and maybe their grandparents were also members of that church. In fact, that phenomenon is so common, we actually have a name for it. It's called inherited religion, when you get it from the past generations. And then other people are members of a particular church out of genuine spiritual reasons. Despite an increasing number of people who, when they are asked on surveys, what is your religious affiliation, are saying that they have none whatsoever. In fact, we call them nuns now. These are people who have no religious affiliation whatsoever. Still, the reality is people are being attracted to churches across our nation. To piggyback on three popular movies that are making the circuit right now, not only is God not dead, it is way premature to be writing the obituary for the Lord's church. There are increasing numbers of people who are actually cracking over the Bible that have been left for years unused on on their closet shelf. People are saying yes when they've been invited to neighborhood Bible studies in someone's home. And some of those very people will eventually make a decision about what church they want want to be a part of. Which raises an important question that I want us to ask and answer in the next few minutes. And that is, what kind of church is going to attract people to it in the 21st century? I believe that we're all in tacit agreement that other than compromising the truth, we all want to be a part of that kind of church. We want people to say, that's what I want to be. If I ever I contemplated, if I ever investigated Christianity, I would want to be a member of that church. And so that's what I want us to think about for just a few minutes. Let's talk about the church at Philippi. I know our text came from Ephesians chapter 3, but for good reason. We're going to focus on Philippi for a few minutes this morning. Because I'll tell you personally, if I were able to somehow climb into a time machine and be carried back to the first century... And I had my pick in New Testament days of what church that I would have liked to have been a member of. It would be one of two churches. I'd either want to be a part of the church at Antioch or the church at Philippi. Now, we don't have a great deal of information about the Antioch church, although most of it is very positive. But there is a letter, four short chapters, that have been addressed to the church at Philippi. So we know more about the congregation that met in Philippi than we do about the congregation that met met in Antioch. And seems to me that here's a church that offers to us some, some qualities, some attributes of a congregation that attracted people then and would attract people today. I think when we walk through these things 
this morning, we're all going to see that that too is the kind of church, not only in the first century, but in the 21st century, that people would look at and say, that's the church that I want to be a part of. Now remember that Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians while he was in prison. Founded around AD 51, the church at Philippi was Paul's first European church. You may remember that Lydia and the jailer and Luke were all a part of that congregation. And then some ten, ten years later, Paul is, is in prison in one of his imprisonments, and, and, and he's writing this uh, love letter to the congregation at Philippi. And one of the reasons that he's doing that, you'll see toward the end of the book, is because they have sent a, a, a love offering to Paul to help him in his ministry. They understand that he's going through a difficult time, that he's in prison, but he still also has to eat every day. And so they've sent actually a, a love contribution to Paul to help him in his ministry. So he's deeply touched by that gesture. He's touched by the love that they have demonstrated toward him. And now he writes this letter, a brief letter, albeit, but a letter that's one of great importance in the New Testament. Beginning of of verse 1 of chapter 3, if you've got your Bible open, take a look at the book of Philippians with me. Paul writes in verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Isn't that a wonderful thing to say? Isn't that a wonderful way to begin a letter even in our day? If somebody wrote you a letter and said, dear, and put your name at the top and said, you know, every time I think about you, I thank God for you. And you would take that, I think, in a very complimentary and a positive way. Surely the Philippian Christians had to as well. Every time I think of you as a church, Paul says, I'm grateful for you. My, my heart overflows with gratitude. And then he says, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul was operating under the assumption that every one of us who become New Testament Christians are an ongoing construction project. You know, it's like the church sign I saw somewhere that said, be patient, God isn't through with us yet, and that's what Paul is communicating. And he's saying, I'm, I'm confident that the Lord is not going to stop working on you and in you and through you until that work project has been completed, until the day of Jesus Christ when the Lord comes back to receive his own. And then there's a statement that these Philippian Christians apparently understood well because it, it became somewhat of a motto for the life of Paul. Look at verse 21, still in chapter 1. This is a verse that you may want to write on a on a stick-it note and put on your mirror so that you can look at it daily and think about it. It's really a deep well that you can just keep reaching into and you never actually reach the bottom. Here's where Paul says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Isn't that a worthy motto for one's life? Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing for somebody to engrave on your headstone, for, for them to be able to say about you as, as a Christian that for me to live is Christ, to die is gain? And then skip down and look at verse 27. Whatever happens, Paul says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's a good challenge for any church and any individual in a church even today. It seems to me that here's a church that grew and thrived. Now, this is going to be the premise for the lesson, so please hang on to this. This church grew and thrived and received this very positive and complimentary letter from the Apostle Paul because Jesus Christ was at the center of everything they did. They were a Christ-centered church. And Paul wrote this letter and acknowledged that in every chapter. 
The Philippians were a people who were centered in, who were focused on, whose behavior was regulated by the behavior and the example of Jesus Christ himself. And they made no pretense and no apology about the fact that our ultimate goal in life as a church and as individuals is that we want, we want to be like Jesus. That was a church, I remind you, that people were attracted to. And don't you think that the same quality will attract people today? If they see a true Christ-centered church, this is a church that exalts Christ, who lifts him up. And, and when you're in the worship services, you can, you can know that they really mean what they say when they express in song and in other ways their deep appreciation, their sincere gratitude for all that, that Christ has done for us in the past, what he's doing for us now, and what he's promised to do for us in the future. This was a church, remember, that Paul advised, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. That's chapter 2, verse 5. And the attitude that he was recommending, as you see in that context of chapter 2, the first few verses, we're going to look at it more closely in a moment, but the attitude that he was commanding when he said, let this attitude or mine be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, was an attitude of, of surrender. It was an attitude of submission, because in that context he said, remember that Jesus came to this earth, he emptied himself, and took upon himself the form of a servant. And so if you really are Christ-centered as a church and as an individual, if you really are wanting to walk in the footsteps of Jesus on a daily basis, one of the things that you're going to have to wrap your brain around and one of the things you're going to have to wrap your, your heart and your soul around is that you're a servant, is, is that you have to go every day into that day with a, a heart of, of submission, We've been talking about that on Sunday night in a short three-lesson series on the will of God. We've got to submit our will to God's will in order to be the people that God would have us to be. So this was a church that was a partner with the gospel, Paul said, from the first day from the very beginning. Remember Lydia and the women by the river that the book of Acts talks about when Philippi, the church in Philippi began? And then there was the Philippian jailer and his household that was also baptized there in, in, in the book of Acts. And these were people who came together, who started as, as a little nucleus of a church, and then they grew into the church that Paul wrote this letter to, an outstanding congregation of God's people. You know, one of the things I think as I read this letter that attracted people to the church at Philippi, once again I submit, was the fact that Jesus was at the center of everything they did. I mean, they, they lived and breathed and slept Jesus. When they walk, woke up in the morning, apparently one of the first things, maybe the first thing they thought about was, it's my privilege to serve the Lord this day. On the other hand, and I hate to turn this negative, but let's contrast that attitude that the Philippians had with the attitude that sometimes is easily prevalent today. A church that simply builds a building, holds services, and paves its parking lot is a church that has numbered its days. A church that is centered around a preacher is a church that has also numbered its days. A church that's more concerned about the color of the carpet than about winning the world for Christ is a church that will eventually close its doors and lock them forevermore. A church that's constantly talking to itself and constantly looking at its own rights and privileges and is always asking, what has the church done for me lately, is a church that has doomed itself because they have violated the first principle of submission. And that is, it's not my will, it's God's will that needs to be carried on in this church and then in our lives individually. 
It's important that we understand that. What has the church done for me lately is not an attitude that's going to attract a lot of people to it. Now, initially it might when people say, well, there's a church that's meeting my needs. But when you realize that that's so superficial, and that's not what God's church is to be about, is looking out for myself and hoping that the church will meet my needs. I need to be able and willing to come to church and say, how can I serve others? I need to stay at home when, when it's appropriate to do that and say, how can I serve my neighbors? How can I be a servant to the people I work with? How can I be a servant and have the spirit of submission even to my own family? The thing that you and I as humans who make up the church have been attracted to and have, have been brought together by this diverse group of people that's meeting in this building right here this morning, our one common denominator is Jesus Christ hanging on the old rugged cross. Don't ever forget that. And once we understand that, and I don't mean just understand it cognitively, but buy in to that idea that Jesus Christ is at the center of this church, then we will become a church that will march for the master like never before. Have you come to the sobering realization in your own life that Jesus is the only thing that holds us together? It isn't our political similarities. Look around. It isn't our racial, racial similarities. It's not our financial commonalities that binds us together. It's Jesus Christ hanging on a cross. It's our personal and collective relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's that very Jesus Christ who began to work in the, in the personal lives from the very beginning of the Philippian congregation. It's that Jesus Christ that's working in the lives of people at the university church who, who forgave us, who gave our lives dignity and direction and purpose. It's he who has become the common denominator of every member that's meeting under this roof this morning. You know, people will be attracted to a church and will want to come to a church when they see Jesus Christ being lifted up and honored in that church. And that's the Bible's guarantee, not Randy's, but that's God's guarantee that that church is not only going to grow and be successful, but there's going to be longevity in that church. It's going to stand for a long, long time. It's not going to have to worry about closing its doors. It's going to continue to grow because it's continued focused on the common denominator that ought to be characteristic of every one of us. You know, I'm not so naive or idealistic that I think that every person who hears the name of Jesus will want him. They won't want to buy into what Jesus stands for. They won't, don't, won't want to be a part of his, of his body, the church. You know, because when I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I realize that not everybody who heard Jesus personally during his personal ministry wanted him. Not everybody decided to become a disciple and follow after him. And you, you know that by reading your own Bible. But there will be some... And maybe many who will want him. If only they understood what Jesus wants us as a church to be. If we became that very accurate and consistent reflection of what Jesus is as he walks on this planet. And people could begin to see that in his followers. If, if they could see past the trappings of religiosity to see him in all of his beauty. You know, there will be many who will see in that Jesus Christ and only in that Jesus is where they have hope. Even death, when we follow the Lord consistently, takes on new meaning. We walk away from the graveyard. We even walk away from the, the casket with an understanding that if we are saying goodbye to someone who's been a faithful Christian man or woman, it doesn't matter. 
is that we're not saying goodbye for the last time. In God's vocabulary, there is no goodbye for those who are faithful children of God. You see, our following Jesus colors everything that we do and every value that we hold, and we can make some sense out of the future when we've, when we've really come to know Jesus. Here's a second principle in this great book about the church that attracted people. And I'm referring now to the verses I mentioned a moment ago, chapter 2. Look at verses 1 through 11 as we study together. Therefore, Paul writes, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of, of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Please lock in on that. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be eagle with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Here's a promise, folks, that you can take to the bank. That, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Folks, there is a promise. There is a prediction from the throne room of God. That there will come a day when every tongue will confess Jesus Christ. And every knee will bow to his deity and to his honor. And that ought to give us some heart. That ought to encourage us in our Christian walk. So Paul is talking about... Not just an illusion, but a discussion of, of something that's very tangible and very real. By the way, Paul isn't wondering in verse 1, beginning, if there is any encouragement or if there's any comfort, because our peculiar word if makes it all sound so conditional, doesn't it? If, if there only, Paul was saying, we had these things. No, that's not what the text is saying. Instead of the word if, the better word here would be the word since. And it would read like this, since we have any encouragement from being united in Christ, since any comfort from his love, and so on. Paul is saying that we ought to look to Jesus as our motto, as our spiritual compass by which we began to navigate our lives. And then clearly from verse 5 forward, we even began to navigate our thinking. Because Christianity begins and ends between the ears. We've got to get our thinking right. That mind has to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, Jesus is the compass by which we navigate our very lives. His message is simply, since Jesus submitted himself to God and to his fellow man, then that's what we need to be doing too. If we really want to be the church that will attract people just like Philippi was, we need to be a church filled with servants. Every one of us needs to have the servant's heart. And if we don't have it, we need to begin developing and cultivating that. And there's a, that's telling us a secret about the church here at Philippi that isn't really a secret because right here it is in black ink on white paper. People are attracted to a church that is character, characterized by harmony and peace and unity. One of the things you have to acknowledge about the Philippian congregation was this is a church that got along. You know, if people 
as they began to look in our day for a church to which to belong. If they wanted more arguing and fussing and fighting, they could stay at home and watch Judge Judy. You know what I'm talking about. That's not what people are looking for. They don't want to come to church and feel like they just watched the view, you know, where everybody's arguing about something. No, it, it reminds me of Ephesians 5.21, where Paul speaks about relationships and families, and then he says, submit to one another. King James says, out of a fear of God. One version says, out of reverence for Christ. Because we're seeking to honor Christ, what do we do? We submit to one another. We understand that your welfare is greater and of more importance than even my own welfare. That is, since Jesus submitted to God the Father, then we're to submit to God and to one another as well. That's, that's what our lives are to be characterized by. So I'm just telling you this morning that Paul is not writing this book of Philippians in order to correct the church. That's what he did in most of the epistles that he wrote, especially 1 Corinthians and Galatians and a number of other uh, epistles that come to mind. But he's writing to the Philippian congregation because this was a church that was characterized by harmony and peace and unity. The closest thing to correction that you'll find in the book of Philippians, if you wanted to turn over a couple of pages and look at the fourth chapter. And in that fourth chapter, you'll find Paul writing this. I plead with Yodia and I plead with uh, Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. And yes, I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, to help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of, of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are also in the book of life. This is the closest that you will find to a problem in the Philippian congregation. Two Christian women apparently had disagreed over some matter. And they worked alongside Paul in his ministry, and he acknowledges that in the text, and he wants the church to join with him in encouraging those two women that we need to get along. One of the characteristics of God's church and a church that people are going to be attracted to is a church that can, can get along. They live in peace and harmony, and it's not just because they have good people skills, it's because they are Christ-centered. Are you seeing the pattern here? And if our focus is on Jesus Christ and not just critically on one another, we will get along. And that's what Paul said was true with the Philippian congregation. Here's a church where harmony and peace and unity prevail as a church. And I'm just submitting that people will be attracted to that kind of church still today. I recently read that the dean of the University of Chicago Divinity School has said that people in the near future, this was written just a few years back, he said that people in the near future will be a member of a particular church because, and I'm now quoting, because they have very much decided to be a part of that church. He went on to explain, he said, you will no longer hear people say we go to this church because mom and dad used to because people today are not going to grow up where mom and dad grew up. I can remember when people lived and died in the same neck of the woods. We are a mobile society. The nomads had nothing on us. We don't grow up typically where mom and dad grew up, and so we're not going to be a part of their church in a generational hand down, as it were. I believe that there are a lot of people who would choose a church of harmony and unity and peace over a church that's always, always debating and arguing, that's a divided people. And, and I know that there are some people in the religious world 
who have the concept that somehow it's weak-kneed and that, that somehow one is not firm and solid in his convictions, isn't committed to absolutes in terms of what the Bible has to say doctrinally and morally unless he's always willing to have an argument with people. That's their image of what Christianity is, you know. Get me out of the baptistry, hand me a towel, I need to go argue with someone. And, and that's not the spirit that you see that Jesus Christ exemplified. Yes, there was conflict. No, Jesus never compromised any of his convictions in any way to be able to get along with people. But Jesus still understood the power and the need for harmony. And that's why Paul would write to the Romans in chapter 12 and say, As much as it lieth in you, live at peace with all men. That is, it isn't always under your control. But Paul says, when it is, make sure that you are a peacemaker and not someone who is a peace breaker. Be someone who values unity and harmony and peace, especially among God's people, but even in our nation of people. So the, the idea of let me start an argument is foreign to the spirit of Christ, who Paul says is always compassionate and willing to submit and serve. In fact, you may remember, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago back in Isaiah 53. Jesus is likened in that, in that prophecy to a lamb led before its shearers. And then he says, and he opened not his mouth. He didn't even come to his own defense when it came time for him to, to hang on that old cross. I, I believe we're living in a time when people are tired of talk. And they want to see how people live. They want to see how people are consistently trying to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. And that means in the spirit of harmony and peace and unity. My own personal study of the word tells me that right at the top of sins in God's eyes is to divide his church. When we do anything that divides his church, folks, we are on very, very thin ice. We are traveling in dangerous territory. Dividing a church is not from God, people. It comes from the enemy camp. Because he's the one who wants to see God's people divided. I don't know how long the Lord will let me live and how long he'll let me preach and how long he will allow me to serve him. But I sincerely hope, in fact, I pray that I will leave behind churches in harmony. And I hope that because of my influence, people will not be at one another's throats, that there will not be disharmony because of the kind of influence that I've left. I know when I lived in Atlanta, I remember seeing a very successful business that was in the wrecking business, and they would bring in these big cranes with swinging metal wrecking balls and front-end loaders and bulldozers. And out in front of whatever project, whatever they were tearing down, it would have this sign, Burks wrecks another one. And they were proud of that business, and they did a good business because it was a needed business. But I'm simply telling you that when it came to, to their line of work, they could do in one day what it took years to build. I'm talking about a multi-level building could be destroyed in one day. And the Lord, I think, wants us to understand the spiritual application and also the spiritual danger in our own lives. Wrecking, folks, is easy. Building up is hard. And it is often slow and laborious. And some people leave behind a trail, a wake of divided and dying churches. Don't let that be us. Outgoing presidents sometimes, especially if they're looking for a re-election, will ask the nation, in your mind, in your assessment, is this nation better off 
now than it was four years ago when you first elected me to office. I've heard more than one president ask that question at the end of their four-year term. You know, every Christian, and, and I believe especially every elder and every preacher would do well to ask ourselves, is this church a better church because I'm a member of it? Am I helping to enhance this spirit of harmony and peace and unity? I'm here to tell you that a divided church, a fussing church, will not attract people. And I hope that we'll always cherish our unity and protect our harmony as we seek to exhibit the spirit of Christ, not only in our actions, but in our attitudes. There's one more characteristic, and then we'll be through. Look at the fourth chapter of the book of Philippians, starting with verse 10. And I'm going to kind of skip around, but I'll tell you where I'm going so that you can keep up with me. Chapter 4, verse 10. First, but I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now as at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. And then I'm going to skip down and read verses 14 through the first part of verse 18. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent... You sent aid once again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and I abound. And then he goes on and he closes out this letter. Here's a church of the first century that grew. People were attracted to that. I think we've already shown that to be the case. And one of the obvious reasons it grew is that, that the members were involved. And they knew what was going on. Somebody said there are three kinds of people in the world. There are those who make things happen. There are those who watch things happen, and then there are those who say, what just happened? <laughs> they have no idea what's going on. Paul says if you want to be a church that will attract people, if you want a church that will grow and not just survive but thrive, you've got to be involved. And I don't mean just sitting in a pew watching what's going on. You've got to be involved in the work, and you've got to know what it is that God wants us to do. These Christians in Philippi were involved in the work of the church. You see this in every chapter. They were the ones who dug deep into their pockets so that Paul would be able to continue his ministry even behind bars. They were involved with their elders and the deacons, and you can see that in the text. They knew what was happening. And whenever they gave to their financial means, they didn't have to sit around and ask one another, what in the world happened to our money? No, these people were involved in the work of the mission of Christ. And Paul writes this letter so that they will know what has happened to their contributions, what his needs were, and even as we get to the end of the letter, what his spirit, what his attitude is as he prepares to leave this life. I truly believe that people today will be drawn to a church where they can be involved, where they know what's going on, where they can be involved even in the planning, and where when they give their money, they know what happens to it. Now, every now and then, I have to admit, I run into some old boy who's a member of the church who says something along these lines. This would be a good church if it didn't ask for money. And folks, let me tell you, that is not a characteristic of a good church. That is a characteristic of a dead church. Only dead churches don't need money. And so that's not the mark of a good church. And thankfully, that is not the prevailing attitude of the brotherhood at large. We just want to know that when we make our thoughtful, carefully planned contributions to the work of the church each Sunday, that it's going to the greatest cause on earth. 
that, that my dollars are somehow going to be able to go either here in Montgomery, Alabama, or somewhere in our nation, or somewhere around our world, someone is going to hear the name Jesus Christ, who would never have heard his name, never have heard his plan, were it not for the contributions that this good congregation makes to that mission point or this mission point. We've got to know what we're doing and what, we're, what, what, what our money is going for and what God would have us to be doing in the first place. We want to know that it's making a positive difference in the lives of men and women around our globe. And I don't mean just here materially, but I mean in eternity as well. I really believe people will go to a church and they won't be, want to be a part of a church where their, where their spiritual needs are met where the teaching and the, and the preaching and everything that we do will enhance and help them in their Christian walk and where the eternal absolutes underguard our collective lives because we know it's not what I think and not what you think and not what the elders think, but it's what God has said in his word that should be the roadmap for this church and every church that bears his name. And I just believe that people today are tired of arguing and debating and, and and they're looking for a cross-based enthusiasm, a cross-based unity. And they're looking for peace and a sweet spirit of harmony as opposed to the dog-eat-dog -dog world that you find out there outside the walls of this facility. They want to help orphans. They want to practice pure religion. They want to serve the widows. They want to be involved in the elderly and the imprisoned. And they don't want to look to some governmental agency to do all of that for them. They understand that that's a part of our walk with Christ as well, to be able to serve people in a very tangible way in our community and throughout the world. But they do want to be a part of a church that's doing all of those things faithfully and consistently. I know that was true with the congregation at Philippi. And I just have to believe that that's true today, 2,000 years later. Now, we can be the church that will attract many, many people in the future if we decide what it is that God would have us to be and what kind of spirit and what kind of heart and, and whether or not we're going to be a Christ-centered church let me end with this thought. Since we call ourselves a church of Christ, we need to be absolutely certain that we reflect a Christ-centeredness, a close relationship with Jesus Christ, or else we need to go at the end of this service outside and take our sign down. If the church fails in its mission, God has no other agency by which to bring his mission to this world. You see, it's in the church where the fullness of Christ is made known to the world. And guess what? That's us. And if we don't do the job, the job won't get done. My question to you this morning is, if you're not a part of the kingdom of Christ, would you like to be a part of that kind of church? And the Bible says from the day of Pentecost forward, through your sincere faith that comes by hearing the word of God, that leads you to repent of all of your past sins, to courageously confess your belief that Jesus is God's son and to be baptized to have all of your sins washed away, you can be a part of that church that people are attracted to while we stand and while we sing.